Welcome back to Office Hours, the William & Mary Law School podcast. I'm Scott McMurtry. I'm Davis McKinney. And today, we are pleased to welcome professors Alan Meese and Nathan Oman to the podcast for a discussion about, but not limited to, the law school's Center for the Study of Law and Markets, of which they are the co-directors. So, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Good to be here. Good good to be here. Yes. Um, So, before we get into the, the... details about the center why don't we just do the typical podcast thing as we discussed and um, have you guys give a, a brief summary of how you ended up at William Mary well I went to college here from 1982 to 1986 I was a Greek major and I also had a secondary major in economics I then went to law school at the University of Chicago graduated in 1989 I did a couple of clerkships one for Frank Easterbrook on the Seventh Circuit and another for Justice Scalia I then worked at Skadden Arps uh, in their Washington office in the antitrust group for about three and a half years and uh, came down here to William & Mary in 1995, started off as an assistant professor and I've been here uh, the whole time. Uh, I teach antitrust, law and economics, corporate law, sometimes I teach tort law, sometimes I teach constitutional law. Early in my time here I taught contracts and I've been the co-director with Nate of the Center for the Study of Law and Markets. Uh, this is our third year now and still going strong. So. Uh, so I'm Nathan Oman. Uh, I went, uh, did my undergraduate at Brigham Young University in uh, Utah, and uh, I basically studied political philosophy uh, as an undergraduate, um, but I, uh, I uh, took a lot of uh, economics classes. I came very close to uh, getting a minor in economics and then decided I wanted to uh, graduate and get married, and my fiance was on the other side of the country, so that didn't happen. Um, it's a compelling interest. Yeah, it was a compelling interest. Uh, no regrets. Um, I worked on Capitol Hill uh, for a while as a Senate staffer, um, and then I went to law school at Harvard Law School and uh, graduated um, in 2003. Uh, and I clerked on the Eighth Circuit for uh, Judge Buzz Arnold. And uh, then I was a uh, litigation associate in the Washington, D.C. office of um, Sidley Austin um, and did some pharmaceutical litigation, appellate litigation, and some bankruptcy litigation. And then I was hired to be a professor at William & Mary in 2006, and I've been here ever since. And I teach a variety of things. I teach contracts. I've taught commercial law. I teach bankruptcy taught business associations, uh, and then I've also taught uh, seminars on the philosophy of, of private law since I've been here. Mm-hmm. I don't think you mentioned you're also the faculty advisor for the Law Review, correct? I, I am also the faculty advisor for the Law Review, and yes. I've been doing that uh, for actually the same period. This is actually my third year of, of doing that as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I help, help out the, the students with paper uh, questions about Law Review. So obviously you both talked a lot about your experience uh, either practicing or instructing in business law type stuff. I assume that that's kind of the, the rough genesis for the Center for the Study of Law and Markets, but how, how exactly did you, did you guys meet up and decide to pursue this as, a, as an initiative? So um, it actually came out of the blue. Uh, we had a very generous alum uh, who approached us, um, alum of the law school and of the, the college. Um, who was interested in making some kind of a donation to the college um, uh, but wasn't quite sure what sort of things they wanted to do, wanted to do something that was going to have an educational impact and was uh, particularly was interested in something that's going to have an impact on the students 
Uh, and through a, a third party mutual acquaintance, uh, this person just approached me out of the blue um, one day. And so, you know, I, people say, I want to give money to the law school. I'm happy to go to coffee with them. Um, and after this conversation, uh, Professor Meese and I were talking, uh, and he had actually hatched this scheme many years before uh, to create um, a center. Uh, and so we pitched this idea to the alum, and uh, uh, he, or I should say they, it's a couple, were uh, enthusiastic about it, and they, uh, there was an outside foundation that also uh, kicked in uh, some money, and that was three years ago, and we've been, we've been going since. Yeah, I think the idea, which as Nate said, has been around for a while, was to create a platform uh, to coordinate a lot of strengths we have on the faculty and in topics related to lawn markets in various fields, whether it's intellectual property or bankruptcy law or commercial law, or corporate law or environmental law or antitrust law or law and economics. Um, those all sound like separate fields, but they all have kind of a common framework in terms of thinking about you know, how economics can inform our uh, discussion of law and markets. And a platform not just for the faculty members, but a way to, to kind of organize programming that would appeal to the students um, we, outside of the classroom uh, and uh, raise the visibility of those topics at the law school. You know, the law school is very well known for a lot of its, and probably so, for a lot of its public law strengths, the Bill of Rights Institute being one example. Um, and so we thought we'd want to offer a center that, you know, again, raise the visibility of these other topics and just try to enrich the education of the students. I know when I was in law school, a lot of things I learned that I still remember, I learned outside the classroom, right, from speakers who came in or from fellow students who were also interested in the topic. I was a law and economics fellow at the University of Chicago, which forced me to make to write a paper in order to uh, get that fellowship, and that was my first law school paper, right, and so again, that was an outside the classroom thing. It wasn't uh, something in the classroom so much, and um, wanted to give students the same opportunities um, uh, here. Uh, and I think, as Nate said, you know, the supporters of the center really want the activities to be directed towards the students, right? And we're trying to do as much of that as we can. So, so I've, I've seen where um, opportunities for students are available, mm -hmm. and um, you spoke about bringing outside speakers. Um, the center offers fellowships correctly yes. for mm -hmm. students, so could you talk a bit more about um, what in, that entails? So uh, every year uh, that we've been in operation now, we, we put out an announcement for uh, any student who's interested in applying to be a fellow. Um, and uh, applications are open to all um, second and third year students. And we require the students to submit um, academic record, so we've got some sense of what their um, academic record has been, and then a statement of interest of what is their interest in the center and in, and in the study of law and markets. And then based on those uh, applications, we uh, choose the fellows. Uh, the fellows are given a scholarship that is funded out of the center's budget. And then in addition uh, to that, they are all required to take a, a special seminar that Professor Meese and I co-teach. Uh, which is, has the uh, really exciting and sexy title of Advanced Topics in Political Economy. Um, and uh, then they are also uh, asked and required to come to all the center events, right? So um, the idea is, is that the fellows get some financial support. Um, it's a nice way of, of helping students and also for the institution to show that like we value um, uh, the study of law and markets, we value sort of um, uh, the study of the regulation of markets and a, a, a business law. 
Uh, and then uh, we really do try to provide the students with a sort of intense um, intellectual enrichment um, to their law school experience uh, through the seminar and the speakers to learn more about law markets. And the seminar we created just for this purpose. It's not like it was a pre-existing course to be said, okay, now take this course. We created it just for this purpose to explore some of the major themes of political economy in the 20th century, uh, essentially. And it's also open to any students, so you don't have to be a fellow to take that class. So sometimes we get students who are not fellows who take the class anyway. And that's great from our, that's great from our perspective. Uh, and as I tell the students, I think you tell the students this too, um, I want them to read things that I wish I had read in law school, right, that I didn't read till after law school, either when I was in practice or when I, when I was an academic, to give them a foundation in how to think about these questions uh, that I lacked until 10 years after that. So I, th I think they appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, one way of thinking about uh, what, we're, what we're trying to do in that course is we basically start with the New Deal. Uh, which in a lot of ways is the kind of big bang for the American regulatory state, which has huge implications for the legal regulation of markets. And we just sort of march the students through uh, the intellectual history from the early 1930s. Uh, we do a little bit before then, but really starting in the early 1930s uh, up to the present and have them read um, the sort of foundational um, um, articles or other things that were being written by the leading um, intellectuals on this topic or scholars on this topic at the time uh, to sort of get a sense of here are the ideas that are behind the creation of all of these different legal regimes that we end up studying in law school and then the way in which thinking about the relationship between law and markets has changed over the course of the 20th century. What are the different intellectual streams that uh, feed into that? And we're having them all read sort of these foundational articles, right? So, um, you know, these really basic ideas that we have about how um, the law works and how it uh, regulates markets. Who came up with these ideas? They the proper role of the state vis-a-vis -vis yeah. individuals and vis -vis the, the economy as well. Um, and there are a lot of ideas that we have that are sort of like common sense ideas or used to be common yeah. sense ideas that nobody ever had and these showed up at some point in time and so we find the articles or the, the places where they showed up when we have the students read the original sources. Yeah. And discuss them. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, no, the students are great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's the course of study is fascinating obviously and I think that gives people a perspective you wouldn't clearly have um, unless you take a lot of classes from YouTube, <laughs> which are very enjoyable and I recommend, um, for the record. Um, but can you talk a little bit about, the besides the course of study, the, the types of events where you bring in the speakers and, sure. you know, or more of the, the classic law school lunch uh, deal? Yeah, so we, we, I think there's really two different things that would fall into that category. First, every year we try to do a conference of some type, which is a public event. So last year we did a conference called Antitrust and the Constitutional Order, we brought in faculty from around the country from grade schools who are leading scholars and I trust whose work sometimes intersects with various constitutional questions and that was a day and a half conference where uh, 10 or 11 different people presented papers and then people commented on the papers uh, and then we had a great turnout for that not just from the students who were fellows in the center but also students um, from uh, not who aren't fellows at all like who just thought, found the topics interesting and attended so that, that was terrific and then we published those papers are about to be published in the William & Mary Law Review. Right? The year before that, we did a conference which was focused on his book, uh, which maybe he can talk about. But uh, again, same model, bringing in scholars from around the country um, to talk about various themes about Nate's recent book. Uh, and then those were published again in one of, one, of our, one of our law journals. So that's sort of one type of event we try to have every year as a public conference. 
Uh, we also have, as you mentioned, the individual speakers who come in over the lunch hour. Uh, again, that's open to everybody, right? Uh, in the last, um, uh, last semester, we had an SCC commissioner who came. Uh, we had a different SCC commissioner in the spring who came. Those were both great speakers. Uh, I think the turnout for that was 70 or 80 students for each event. Mm -hmm. Lots of great questions from the students. Um, you know, I try not to ask questions at these events. I think they're for the students, and the students ask great questions. Some of them talked about law review topics they're working on or law journal notes they're talking on and got advice from the, uh, one of the SEC commissioners about their note, which is a, I think that's a pretty good opportunity for a student. Um, and we try to you know, bring in a lot of different um, topics. You know, We had someone come in about taboo markets, which is sort of markets for organs and things of that nature, and then somebody come in, come in and talk about uh, postal banking and sort of this idea of revitalizing uh, an idea that it, it sort of uh, lost favor and might be coming back to make sure people have better access to financial markets. Uh, in that way, someone come in and talk about uh, sort of re religious liberty and economic regulation and how those two things kind of mesh. Barack Richmond from Duke talked about that. It was Kim Kravick who talked about uh, taboo markets. And uh, Kim was here again a couple weeks ago to talk about uh, gender diversity in corporate boards and California's new statute about that and discussing some of the empirical literature on whether or not that has a, a, a positive impact and how to think about that literature in light of some of her own work where she's done a lot of interviews of corporate directors. So we've had a lot of different topics that intersect with law and markets. We're trying to um, you know, expose people to the fact that you know, it's not just the, the traditional corporation law or antitrust law or bankruptcy law. Uh, subjects where law and markets intersect, but how you think about law and markets has all sorts of implications in a wide variety of contexts, right? And we had Jonathan Adler come in and speak about environmental federalism uh, last year. Again, that was, that was another great talk. He's a nationally known uh, authority on that subject, um, and it was great to have him and again expose the students to, 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 to those ideas. So we're, we're, again, we're just trying in various ways to use the center as a platform uh, to expose people to these various ideas, give them an opportunity to, to avail themselves of that and think think about what they've learned in the classroom and how it applies in different different arenas um, in public law, private law, and, and what happens. Yeah, the, the one that stands out is one of the more intriguing lunch talks I've been to in law school, not just in this program, but the one with um, Barack Richmond about mm -hmm. using antitrust yeah. essentially to kind of ch to challenge the certification process for rabbis right. it was probably a more technical way to say that but that's yeah. essentially what it was about and it, yeah. I had never thought about really those two concepts intersecting well, he, he has personal he's written about this he has personal experience with that where his own uh, synagogue was trying to uh, find a rabbi to hire and they were negatively affected by these regulations that the trade association had created that kind of allocated who you can interview here and who you can interview there and he that for him, generated a, a couple of papers <laughs> yeah. about why those uh, restrictions violated, um, he thought, the Sherman Act, and that enforcing the Sherman Act in that context does not violate religious liberty. And he also wrote, wrote an amicus brief uh, in the Supreme Court case about that. I signed that brief, actually, in the Supreme Court case. Um, and it was on a tabor case. He wrote a, an amicus brief there. You know, that was not an antitrust case, right? So yeah, that was you know, a great example of someone who uh, had some personal experience um, in, in that world. And, was trying to uh, bring that to bring a scholarship to bear on that experience and letting that experience inform 
inform his scholarship. And yeah, very interesting. I think he's still doing interesting work on that. And some of the things he talked about, he, he was a speaker at our, at our conference on antitrust in the Constitution last spring. And he spoke remotely, as I recall. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, again, some very, very interesting work. And I remember an interesting interchange you had with him about his, his viewpoints on this. So um, again, it's sort of not something you would think of as the quintessential law and markets topic, but it was a terrific exchange. Mm -hmm. yeah, so. I, I would have been, I think that was last spring, was that that yeah, one, Yeah, I right? think that's right. He, yeah. his, his was the first spring. Was it the first it, it spring? Was, oh, okay. It so was, it was um, his talk was in, the, in our first year, he was the last speaker in our in first, first year. year, and then this most recent February, he spoke at the law review, the conference that we put on with the law review, he spoke remotely mm -hmm. uh, by Skype, I think. Uh, so he was up on the screen. Um, debating various people in the audience, as I recall. So, I would have been much more well-versed if that was this spring, because I'm now taking antitrust and okay. First Amendment religious okay. <laughs> religion yeah. clauses, yeah. and now it all seems to intersect. You've got the ministerial exception, and you've got everything we learn. One of the things we've done is we, we podcast all of our talks, right? And so it's, I think his is up in the His may have been the first that we podcast. Um, and so you can go to our site, and if you want to hear his talk that, that spring, go listen to it and also I think we have podcasts about the all the law review speakers at the second mm -hmm. conference mm -hmm. the antitrust conference this last spring so mm -hmm. uh, it's up there certainly. yeah so we're, we're, we are trying to get out find as many different ways as possible for students uh, or other but anybody else is interested right yeah. to see what's going on in the center and learn from yeah. the speakers or public events we have about 15 fellows a year too which is uh, mm -hmm. uh, 15 sometimes 16 I think yeah. but we, we shoot for about that number I was pleased to hear as a, as a 1L, all that sounded very interesting, but I hate that I missed that. Um, so I know that, um, of course, the study of law varies very differently from the practice of law. So what are the, the big differences that you've seen both in your own experiences? And also, how do you hope that um, the programs that you give inform students in their own practices? Well, I think in my field of antitrust, where I practiced for three or four years, um, there is a big overlap between the doctrine on the one hand and economic theory on the other. And so um, the Sherman Act has not been amended, uh, except for some exemptions that Congress has created, it has not been amended since 1890. It's the same, uh, the same law. Uh, decisions interpreting it uh, at the Supreme Court level that haven't been overruled are still good law and understanding how over time those decisions were influenced by different theories of political economy or different economic theories is very important, right? So when you're trying to describe to a court why it should adhere to this decision or why it should read this decision narrowly, it's very useful to know the genesis of that decision and then what economic influences were brought to bear that led, that led to that decision, right? So that's, that's very important. The Sherman Act is, hasn't changed, and the body of precedence is out there that you have to draw. I know when I was in practice, we could sometimes cite a case from 1898 as though it was still the law. And sort of understanding the background of that case and, and, and why the court said what it said is very important. And to understand it fully, you need to understand how different ideas of political economy have unfolded over time, as, as Nate was discussing earlier. And then also, just on a more micro level, you know, um, you're trying to figure out in an antitrust controversy whether a contract or a merger or some other practice creates more wealth than it destroys. I mean, that's the ultimate economic question. I mean, the doctrine isn't always framed that way, but if you can make a case to the decision maker that something creates more wealth than it destroys, 
that you're on pretty good ground at that point. And so um, to understand whether it does or not, you need to have the, some of these basic tools, the, the Coase theorem and transaction cost economics. We talked about both of Coase's foundational articles in our class. We talk about this problem of social cost. We talk about the nature of the firm um, and uh, other, other works about the distinction between you know, voluntary contracting on the one hand and contracts of adhesion on the other, what is the better way to, to interpret these various agreements? And as theories of contract formation have changed over time, courts today are much more receptive to the idea that these are voluntary ways of reducing the, the cost of engaging in certain economic relationships. To understand that kind of background economic theory when you're trying to interpret a contract or, or, or a merger or something like that, and to be able to translate that to a judge who is not a specialist is very important, right? So, again, I did not read the nature of the firm in law school. I, did, I wish I had, right? Because I would have been, been ahead of where I was when I first started antitrust practice. So I didn't read it, I think, until I was here, probably. And so, again, we're trying to give students these kind of tools. Now, of course, not every student is going to be an antitrust lawyer. Uh, you're going to be a corporate lawyer or a securities lawyer to read the nature of the firm and understand how to think about what a corporation is compared to other types of business entities. That's very important, that so, kind of apparatus. I was, uh, in, in practice, I, I did some uh, corporate reorganization work, uh, some so bankruptcy chapter 11 work. Uh, and what you're doing uh, at the sort of macro level in a, in a corporate reorganization, right, is you're trying to restructure the capital structure of a firm, right? And in order to understand why, how the different, what are the interests of the different constituencies and what are the incentives of the different constituencies, which ends up being really important uh, in litigation for understanding, um, you know, the strategic behavior of people, um, what, how the negotiations are going to proceed. Um, you need to understand um, how a firm is structured um, as an economic matter. You got to understand how the incentives of equity holders and junior debt and senior debt work, um, how those incentives are going to shift as the firm becomes insolvent or solvent. Um, so at that level, um, the most kind of valuable thing, and this is again is, is something where I wish I'd had this in law school before I went um, into practice, is just understanding what is going on. Uh, particularly if you're in practice where you're in a corporate practice or a bankruptcy or commercial practice, one thing that you're going to find is you are oftentimes dealing with very, very complicated transactions. And uh, one of the things that I uh, would struggle with in practice is just trying to understand what was going on in the transaction. Why was it structured the particular way that it was? And I can, um, it is a really, really valuable, right, to have some basic economic and theoretical background because it turns out it's got bite in just explaining to you why do bondholders behave the way they do in bankruptcy and why does why do equity holders behave so much differently in bankruptcy than they do outside of bankruptcy things like that so I guess that's a great summary of everything that What's going on right now and what you've done over the last three years lots of nuggets of wisdom there to, to glean if you'd like what do you see um how do you see the center kind of either growing evolving um are there different types of areas or fields you want to expand it into in the coming years or hopefully decades well to some extent it depends upon the interests of the faculty who whose work overlaps with law and market. Right, so we've added some fellows um, uh, who 
have interest in fields other than the ones that, that we had when we first started the center. As we appoint more people over time at the law school, uh, that's not a, a center decision who we appoint, right? So we, uh, as more people arrive who uh, are in other fields, we'll accommodate that. And, and, and you know maybe they'll have a conference on a different topic that from any conference we've had so far. One thing we've talked about in terms of conferences maybe is having some kind of uh, smaller conferences that are more focused on particular issues that are uh, uh, more for a select group of people instead of a big public conference where you publish everything in the law review. And then again, that's kind of ad hoc in the sense that if a faculty member came to us and wanted to do that, we would, we would offer support for that. But again, that's to some extent up to the faculty member if they, if they want to do that. One thing we started doing this year was an initiative of encouraging faculty who are fellows in the center to offer themselves to do directed readings with students. And so we advertise now at the beginning of the semester uh, with a list of uh, faculty or fellows in the center who are willing to do directed readings with students and encourage students to contact those faculty fellows. So this year we have, um, for this semester, we have three different directed readings being done in that way under the auspices of the center. And again, the students who come to do that don't have to be student fellows, right? The hope is that we're going to expand to reach the students who aren't student fellows. And I think, I think it's the case that most or all of those students are not are not student fellows. So that's a new initiative. We just started next year. We'll, we'll expand the next. We'll hopefully expand the next year. Uh, get more directed readings uh, in the same way. Um, you know, right now, as you mentioned, uh, the, the students who apply for fellowships they apply. Um, in their second or third year, right? So you're a fellow for one year, either for your second year or for your third year. Um, we've thought about whether that's the, the best model, right? Do we want to say to somebody when they're coming in as a student, uh, we'll select you as a fellow before you get here? Uh, it's a little tricky. What would a first year student do, right? Uh, because you know, your courses are mandated, you have to take these classes. And, it's, uh, it's a big transition just to come in as a first-year law student and also do the legal writing aspect and everything else. Do we want to put extra burdens on you to have to come to events as a first-year student or something like that? Maybe not, right? So we've been talking about that for a while about do we want to stick with the current model, which is just 16 students who are fellows for a year and then they rotate out or they graduate, or do we want to expand it so you have a three-year fellowship and so you're a fellow all the way through for three years and then what would that mean? have the same scholarship size for all three years or would we reduce the scholarship and make it smaller per year but you still get more total financial aid we haven't we have, uh, come to that. so one of the goals of the center in addition to sort of enriching the law school is that um, we, we hope that it is going to be a signal to prospective students right that students who have an interest in uh, markets have an interest in business have an interest in economics have an interest in political economy uh, that there is a place for you guys at William and Mary, that this is a place where if you've got those interests, we've got the resources uh, to support your study in those areas, and we have the expertise on the faculty that you can learn about those areas. Uh, and so one of the, the, the discussions that we have when we think about uh, whether or not to offer earlier fellowships is just how is it that um, we can use the center uh, to attract uh, more students to uh, William and Mary to take advantage of these kinds of, of, of projects. Particularly in that, you know, one of the major things that uh, lawyers do is lawyers provide advice to uh, businesses and other market participants that are being regulated by the law, right? And that, as, as an empirical matter, is that's where the lion's share of the jobs uh, in the legal services industry are. So it's important that we 
um, uh, provide opportunities for students to learn about those things so they'll be more and better prepared when they go out and practice law. And I'll say, to add to that, one of the things that has pleasantly surprised me uh, is that we get students who are student fellows who have a wide variety of interests, right? They're interested in environmental law and regulation, so they might want to go work for the government or a nonprofit. They're interested in international human rights and economic development, and of course, political economy bears very importantly on that topic as well. Uh, they're interested in more traditional things like antitrust or corporate law or securities. Uh, just, there's just a wide variety of interests that students bring to bear uh, when, they, when, when they sign up for this, and they're, they're all going to use what they learn as fellows in the center as part of their toolbox to accomplish whatever professional or uh, whatever professional objective uh, they have. Some of which is in the, in the you know private law firm arena, but some of which is in the nonprofit sector or the international sector. Uh, and I think that's terrific. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine a, a, a legal job that isn't going to bump up at some point or another um, against the issue of how the law regulates and deals with markets. I, I can say as a new student learning about this position, it seems like one of the more interesting and exciting and engaging opportunities. So I hope any prospective student out there listening to this really does um, take this uh, interview to heart and, and look into this. So. It's a big tent. Center for Study of Law and Markets has a place for everybody, it sounds like. Absolutely. What a great note to close on. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again um, for joining us, Professors Owen and Meese. And that was a great recap for the Center for the Study of Law and Markets. <laughs> um, tune in next week for another episode of Office Hours. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.